In college, I'm studying to have a psychology minor, which means I've taken like three more psych classes than the average person, which basically means nothing at all. <laughs> but I am, and have always been, interested in the why behind people's actions. I've always had a difficult time being angry with people when they make a mistake, because usually I'm able to justify their actions with the psychology buzzword I learned the week before. We get it, D. You're forgiving. That's why everyone likes you. <laughs> no, seriously. I feel like it can be hard to be angry at someone when you know that, to a certain extent, their actions are fueled by a subconscious process in their brain or from unresolved implications from their childhood. Sure. <laughs> or maybe I am just forgiving. <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. My name is Dee. And I'm Annie. And you're listening to Pretty Angry, the podcast where we try to investigate and articulate what the hell women are yelling about. Right. See, Dee and I are seniors at a women's college, which means for the past four years, we've been interacting almost exclusively with women on a day-to-day basis. And each week, we're bringing you into the conversations we've had on campus about what it means to be a woman in 2018. Specifically, conversations we've had in our psychology classes. We're getting sciencey today, folks! <laughs> One of the most fascinating psychological theories I've studied at Barnard is this idea of a schema. Schemas, as introduced by famous psychologist Jean Piaget, are mental frameworks that help us interpret information. Basically, as children, we come to understand the world by sorting new information into schemas. As toddlers, we might have a horse schema, with characteristics in it such as animal, large, tall, brown, four legs. Anything that we see that fits these characteristics will be categorized as a horse. So, when we are three years old and just developing our understanding of the world, we might drive by a deer in rural Ohio and call it a horsey. But, as we grow and learn, we add new information into our existing schemas and we create new schemas for new categories. As adults, we all now have horse schemas and deer schemas and dog schemas and even wedding schemas, friendship schemas, and morality schemas. Yeah, it can go that deep. Annie, what do schemas have to do with womanhood? Surprisingly, a lot. Along with the schemas I just listed, we have gender schemas as well. Growing up, we develop foundational frameworks for what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl. When we see a man, we unconsciously have a list of traits associated with him as part of our male schema. And when we see a woman, we have a different list of traits associated with her. I have that? We all have that. Every person on this planet organizes people into schemas based on things like gender. We need schemas to sort through and understand the world around us. And not only does everyone carry them, but schemas operate on an unconscious level most of the time. We aren't aware of our brains thinking... Horses walk on four legs when we see a horse, but we do think that. That's why it's worth talking about our schemas, because without us knowing it, they affect how we think about the world around us constantly. Annie, can I tell you a riddle? Okay, tell me. A father and a son get into a terrible car crash that kills the father. The son is rushed to the hospital. Just as he's about to go under the knife, the surgeon says... I can't operate on this person. This boy is my son. Explain. So, 
the dad's like gay there's two dads no. right uh um it's like a, a godfather situation no <laughs> uh the answer is that the surgeon is the boy's mother oh duh jesus <laughs> isn't that wild amazingly only 14 percent of the participants in this bu study got that answer right i didn't get it right the first time i was asked it this is because the doctor schema and the male schema have many overlapping characteristics in our mind the female schema on the other hand does not align with doctor almost at all when schemas are formed we think of women in terms of their reproductive capacity and we think of men in terms of their competency. Uh, I'm actually going to quote Virginia Valian directly here because she is a leading psychological researcher on gender schemas, and she says it best. She says, quote, We see females as nurturing, as communal, as doing things out of concern for other people. We see males as capable of independent action, doing things for a reason, and getting down to the business at hand. We have schemas about almost everything. So students have schemas about what it is to be a professor, and people have schemas about what it is to be a scientist. And for most professions, the schema that people have for being a professional person overlaps much more with the schema for being male than it does for the schema for being female. Requirements to be successful in most fields are being capable of independent action, doing things for a reason, and getting down to the business at hand. Virginia Valian and other psychologists have confirmed this tendency for leadership in general. When asked to define what it means to be a leader, men and women say things like intelligence, dominance, assertiveness, level-headedness, strength, courage, and dedication. When the same people are asked to articulate characteristics of male schemas, they list many of the same adjectives. The female schema, on the other hand, barely lines up at all. Wait, what? I have many women in my life that I think of as leaders. I also feel like leaders don't have to be risk takers or dominant. I don't know. I just don't agree with those generalizations at all. Right. And you're not alone. When thinking directly and logically about leadership and gender, many people would never say that only men carry the proper leadership characteristics. But remember, the two really important things about schemas are that one, everyone carries them, and two, they're subconscious. Basically, women are dismissed as poor leaders all the time, despite people's best intentions and sincere belief that women can lead as well as men can. An example of this for my own personal life that I strongly remember was the very last day of my first film class I ever took. Um, it was an intro to film class my freshman year, and we watched a movie every week, and at the very end of the class, my professor was like, have you all realized that every movie we've watched this semester has been directed by a male? That's because only 4% of directors are females. Um, and she basically started telling us, the class of mostly women at Barnard, that directing is for everyone and that we should think of ourselves as potential candidates you know, for directors in the film industry. And that was when I realized, even though I had loved film my whole life, I never considered going into film or being a director, because I just never saw, I just thought of men, I just thought of directors as men. Um, and it was just, I mean, I remember, like, texting my mom about it, 
and I'm now a film studies major wanting to be a director. I really relate to that. I am like currently thinking about jobs for after graduating in May. Um, and I remember learning about the difference between men and women when they apply for jobs and that a lot of the time employers, when they're looking at a resume, um, they will subconsciously choose the male resume. And there was even a study done where they gave employers or hiring managers two of the exact same resumes to multiple of them in the study. And one had a male name on it and one had a female name on it. And overwhelmingly, most of the time, they chose the male resume over the female resume, even though they were exactly the same. That's insane. That's also heartbreaking. What's so difficult about this stuff is like, you don't, there's no way of knowing. Like me and you might not get called back for a job. And like, we don't know that's because our name is, you know, Annie's a female name. And the person hiring probably doesn't even know that they dismissed you because maybe you were a female. Like maybe that played into it. It's such a hard thing to fight against. I think a great way to try to combat these schemas in this resume uh, standpoint is that there are some organizations that are purposefully taking measures like literally covering up names like covering Mm -hmm. up uh, genders on resumes to try to like take out that internal bias in their minds Um, they're also doing this with with race because similar things are found um, when like an african-american man versus a white man apply for the same job like there's similar outcomes Um, it's just it's very it's very interesting Gender schemas and all kinds of schemas are important and unavoidable parts of human psychology. Without the creation of these mental frameworks, every bit of information you receive would feel unknown and disconnected from everything else. It would be pretty overwhelming. But the inevitable downside to schemas is oversimplification. Although many boys are assertive, wonderful leaders, and many girls are nurturing, incredible communicators, We simply can't argue that everyone fits perfectly into the frameworks that we've sorted them into. Consequences of these misattributions is that real people, often women, experience what Virginia Valian terms an accumulation of disadvantage. I'm going to quote her again because she really says it best. She says, The short answer to the question of why women aren't being represented in leadership positions in academia and in the professions generally is that gender schemas result in our slightly but consistently undervaluing of women in the professional domain and overvaluing of men in lots of small ways. Those instances of undervaluations and overvaluation add up over time so that women accumulate advantage more slowly and over time they fall further and further behind men. Effects of this can be seen in the fact that women are actually gaining more and more degrees in higher education, but are consistently underpublished in academic journals, given fewer leadership positions, and receive less academic awards. Yeah, so I would say that if you're a woman, you have an internal scheme of how you ought to act, but you also have... I would say like a projected scheme of how others ought to act. That's Andrea. She's a psychology major here at Barnard and one of my good friends. Did you get any messaging growing up about like what it meant to be a girl um, at home or anything? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a very Hispanic household. So since I was a kid, um, I was told girls do this, girls wear this. And if I did anything the opposite, especially my grandma would really 
get on me and tell me what I was doing was too boyish, too masculine. How am I going to find a husband? Um, since I was like 10, I think she was already telling me that I had to find a husband. I had to have long hair to be a husband and that I had to wear certain makeup to wear, to, to be, to, to be a husband, to get a husband, um, and things like that. But it was also to my brother as well. My brother mm-hmm. didn't have enough muscles. My brother's really short. He's really small framed and that kind of wasn't enough for my dad or my grandma because they didn't think women would find him desirable and he wasn't assertive enough and he's really shy we're both really shy which was great on my part I mean I was like the shining child because I was quiet and I never really raised my voice and I was not confrontational which was perfect for them yeah that's a really like great way to fit into the gender schema is to kind of be quieter or something Yeah, yeah no it was perfect and then for my brother he was always kind of treated like something was wrong with him and he had a really low self-esteem growing up because he was smaller more like quote-unquote feminine um so that's kind of how the gender roles were assigned in my house growing up did you I feel like for me a lot of when I was a kid a lot of the way that I like understood gender was by the toys that I played with like did you and your brother ever play with different toys or like do you have any memories associated with like specific toys that you played with as a kid yeah, my grandma would always buy me those American Girl dolls, like the really pretty porcelain ones, and she would come in my room and say, hey, have you brushed its hair yet? Have you come up with a name for it yet? Who's her husband? Things like that. I feel and that. then my brother always had like the Tonka trucks, um, but I hated the dolls. I would hide them in my closet when she left because they freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it so funny how we get American Girl dolls and then we were like not allowed to play with them? Like I don't know, if, or, or that was in my household. Mm. It was like the... the like or you could like play with her but you you were very gentle like you you brushed her you like took care of her more yeah. than you like played with her yeah like I wanted to like put her in a truck and throw her down the stairs to, like see what happened mm-hmm. but like that wasn't what they were for no they were on they were for display they were yeah. 100% for display they were expensive they were delicate they were breakable so you had to kind of put them on top and then you would take it out brush its hair and, and so were we supposedly yeah. delicate beautiful breakable like you know put them on the shelf and then the boys could go play in like the Mm -hmm. mud with the trucks like that was kind of in my house too I remember I had like a stool for my American girl doll and like she could watch as I like played with my other toys and like she she would like come to dinner and like sit on a stool but that was like the extent (laughs) of like what she did (laughs) that is so funny and again there's nothing like I love I loved my American girl doll it's just as funny when you start applying these like filters mm-hmm. to them like looking back and being like oh it's weird it's, i guess that is kind of weird like have a toy that you couldn't play with american girl dolls never had conversations with each other whereas like i remember with like trucks and like my brother's transformers like smashing them against each other but like that is that was not what girl toys were for but also andrea to go back really quickly about what you're talking about your childhood it seems like you were suggesting that from early on for maybe you and your brother mm-hmm. a lot of the the gender roles or whatever that were being pushed on you were about finding a partner is yeah. that true is that for your brother as well no no definitely not for my brother I just remember my grandma would take me out into our little garden and we would like pick apart the flowers he loves me he loves me not for like any boy that I found she would be like who do you have a crush on and I would say I don't know if I really have a crush on anyone and she would say oh just choose the cutest guy and we'll see if you're gonna marry him like for fun and we did that since I was a kid I mean for as long as I can 
and now you're a hopeless romantic it all makes sense no i i know and even as i was growing up like when i had to start like waxing or shaving it was like you have to do this otherwise no man is going to look at you do you really want that and of course the answer was no i mean since i was five i've been playing games about how i was going to find my husband and how he was going to be my knight in shining armor if i waxed my arms you know that's insane i want to say that like my mind is blown but it's not at all like i relate to that a lot your brother was pushed to be more masculine but Mm -hmm. it was less about getting a wife and more about just like fulfilling the role of of man just like getting muscles and being strong and all those things which is so hard when you're not genetically no i mean predisposed to be strong and tall like that sucks to have that pressure no no man in my family on my dad's side is over five seven so i don't know how he would (laughs) r.i.p that's that's stressful do you feel like that is more of a hispanic pressure or do you think it's universal i think it is universal but also in the hispanic culture i think it's very 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 strong Mm. um i mean i talking to my cuban uncles over christmas break it's horrible i mean he my uncles look at me and they think why are you in college what are you doing that for like they're still in that mindset wow where they're confused as to why i have black friends type of thing like it's pretty extreme (laughs) especially in the the older generations yeah so i would say yes it's universal of course but for the hispanic culture there's definitely this feeling of you know the machismo culture and for men feeling strong and powerful and getting a lot of girls but never being attached to one Mm. so wow what about the idea that women are emotional um i think that's a big part of the female schema for all for all people how women think of themselves how men think of women um and i was reading a study recently about emergency rooms and how when men and women enter emergency rooms in pain men are more likely to be given medication while women are more likely to be given sedatives um, in that when women are complaining about pain, they're more likely to be interpreted as being over-emotional and needing to calm down. While when men complain about pain, they're more likely to be taken seriously because men aren't expected to complain about themselves and their emotions that much. Uh, I like legitimately just read something about this the other day. I think it was from like a University of Pennsylvania study. Um that it found that women wait 16 minutes longer than men to receive pain medication when they visit an emergency room and that like women are also more likely to be told that our pain is psychosomatic or influenced by emotional distress and like also as someone who like suffers from a chronic illness um like 83 percent of the women surveys said that they had experienced gender discrimination from their healthcare providers in regards to chronic pain. Yeah. So something that frustrates me is that from when we're kids, I feel like women are told the schema is that we are emotional and that we have a lot of feelings and that we're good at processing them. And that's why there are these emotional creatures. Mm-hmm. But then once you fulfill that, I feel like we're very quick to be called crazy at the same time. Wow. So it's this dual identity of being emotional and good at processing your emotions, but also being manic at the same time and not being able to think clearly if that makes sense and just like a complete double standard of like yeah this is what you are but as soon as you become that it's wrong Mm -hmm. it's hard to win like like either you're either you're not fulfilling your your gender schema and you're not being emotional you're being like closed off and i think that can be off-putting when a woman is like emotionally closed off because 
psychologically you're not fulfilling what the role everyone like assumes you should be but then when you do fulfill the role it's also not very helpful because sometimes you can be called crazy or just being thought of as over emotional exactly um i also think that because we think of ourselves over emotional sometimes it's hard to trust ourselves i don't know if you two relate to that at all but i've had times where i can't tell if i'm being dramatic or not or if my emotions are real or not because i'm I'm worried I'm being over emotional or I'm worried I'm being dramatic. So I'm like in pain mm-hmm. or I'm heartbroken, but then I'm like, oh, but you're probably being over emotional. So it's mm-hmm. fine. So it's like, it's hard to just even trust your own uh, exactly. instinct about that stuff. Exactly. And sometimes it's not even in a particular setting where there's a man, let's say, imposing it on you or calling you crazy no, in the moment. Not. It's just something that you've internalized so much so that every time you express an emotion you have to make sure that it's just emotional enough but not going into crazy territory you know yeah totally and recently i feel like you were kind of dismissed as maybe being like dramatic or or emotional or something yeah so i visited a psychiatrist a couple of weeks ago because i've struggled with generalized anxiety disorder my entire life and i finally worked up the courage to get treatment for it Um, So I went downtown, I visited the psychiatrist, told him everything that I had been feeling. He diagnosed me with the disorder again, and then immediately told me that I shouldn't get on medication because it would make me gain weight, and for someone like me, wink in the eye, that would not be good. Um, So it was very clear that he was just implying that weight gain would not be desirable for someone like me, aka a woman, and that that is somehow more important than my mental state. And when I tried telling him that, it was just immediately dismissed. He kept cutting me off, and then he just suggested that I pay $600 a week for therapy with one of his partners. And and, and not get the medication. No, and not get the the medication. Because although he believed you that you had anxiety, it seemed like he was interpreting... you was being a little over emotional because you, right because of like your background right what was that about right yeah so I was just telling him when I worry and when I feel anxious which is essentially all the time and I was telling him that it's interfering with how I live my life I, I don't like going to meetings I don't like speaking in class things like that that are going to interfere with my life as I graduate and become an adult with a real job um, and then at the end of the session when he told me I didn't qualify I guess for medications he was telling me that these thoughts are basically just a nuisance and they're, that they're just due to my school environment or due to things that I can't really control and that it should just be something that I live with and that because I can function and that because I go to Columbia and that because I have a good job after graduation, I'm totally fine and I'm overreacting to my situation pretty much. That's insane. And and, and like I, I can like vouch for Andrea in her ongoing struggle that like the, this it's it's like when you know it's real like you know it's fucking real mm-hmm. um i've had that? it since i was like in kindergarten it, it runs in the family but i remember even when i was like in first grade even younger my the teachers would go to my parents and be like she's not sleeping during nap time she keeps asking me why she needs to sleep or how she's gonna fall asleep is this normal um and uh. that kind of went throughout my whole lower school middle school I used to get chronic nausea when I was in third or fourth grade I was in and out of um GIs trying to figure out what was wrong always taking Pepto-Bismol um I lost like 15 pounds at the end of my freshman year because I just stopped eating for three weeks because I was so anxious to put anything into my body um and that just has kind of continued throughout life so for someone to tell me that 
I don't qualify for medications because these are just pesky thoughts that I'm overreacting. And by the way, I wouldn't want to gain an extra 5, 10 pounds, would you? Now that really rings true for me because over the past few years, I've had a lot of bad experiences with gynecologists in particular when talking about pain during sex. Oh my God. I, I remember talking about that. We, we talked about that like freshman year, didn't we? Yeah, no, it started freshman year and I was having a lot of pain and each gynecologist I went to on campus, off campus, back home in New York, it didn't matter, always told me the same thing. Have a glass of wine before you have sex oh or try getting on some kind of antidepressant if you can. I was 17 at the time and they were telling me that I should have a glass of wine before having sex in order to have it feel good and that I just needed to relax and that I was just nervous and that I was just scared. And I was told that for almost three years, two years, before I finally found someone in the city downtown who was doing pioneering research on female sexual pain and who was able to actually give me a clearer picture of what was going on with my body. I I, I remember talking about this with Andrea when the pain started happening and I was telling her that, like, it was very common to have pain during sex, which, I mean, I think for some some extent, like, it can be uncomfortable. Yeah, no, no, to your credit, I mean, the first few times are known to be painful, so I definitely think that you weren't saying anything wrong. The issue is that it lasted for two, three years. Um, But are they actually supposed to be painful, or is that, like, another example? I, my first time having sex was not painful at all. Yeah, so that's just, like, another example of society being like, mm, yeah, you're just sensitive. Yeah, so so I think a lot of women have pain during sex. Mm-hmm. Um, yours yours wasn't this, like, subtle discomfort that, oh, glass of wine could help, right? No. Um, what, what, what did you figure out that was happening? So after I went to this gynecologist downtown who told me he was one of the first gynecologists in the world who is actually studying female sexual pain, which is unbelievable in and of itself that no one else was studying this. He told me that it was a combination of two things. It's actually a reproductive issue that I have structurally, and then it's also a condition called vulvodynia, which is a chronic condition that produces pain for women during sex. That is wild. I literally just looked up vulvodynia, Mm -hmm. what you said, and it says that 16% of women might have vulvodynia. Which is a outrageous number for me never hearing of that. Mm-hmm. Annie, have you heard of this? No, like never in my life. That just is really wild that, I mean, if 16% of men had a condition that made ejaculation painful, it would be the number one thing on, on like, ads and like on the shelves of pharmacies like don't don't you think so no it's true and i was actually reading somewhere that viagra is pretty easily accessible and it makes billions literally billions and it's covered by medicaid per year yeah and it is covered by medicaid however there are currently no products designed that are that are for women to increase their sexual libido they actually created the first medication that's been on the shelves for women specifically for this issue and they found that close to like 50 percent of women have sexual performance troubles but there's no medication for it yet viagra is a billion dollar industry their partner might not want to have sex either mm-hmm. but you better just suck it up i get like i, I didn't even think of that medication which contributes might help. to pain for women if yeah and then 16 percent at least have vulvodynia there's also other conditions that are being found and talked about more and more around like 
pain in women and sex. Um, there's something called endometriitis that 176 million women worldwide might have, um, or sorry, are currently known to have. So it's not only just 16% of women. It, it, there's a there's a huge, possibly majority, but I mean, just a huge percentage of women who um, struggle legitimately with uh, intercourse, and it just isn't talked about. I remember one time I had this UTI for like four months, and it was what? It was from wearing too like leggings too much because I was a dancer, and it was just from wearing too much leggings. And I just got like they kept telling me to drink like more water and more like cranberry juice, and I was not put on antibiotics for literally four months, and I was just like peeing painfully. That is absolutely insane. Also, Andrea, you mentioned that this doctor that you went to see, finally in the city after seeing these other few doctors, um, this one doctor who you were talking about believed you. He was one of the only ones in the city studying this. Um, I think that's actually a trend. I, I was talking to our other roommate, Carly, who was actually on last week's episode of the podcast. Go check it out if you haven't listened. <laughs> um, but we were talking, uh, she's currently working um, on a study on pregnant women's memory and how pregnancy affects women's memory and it's also a pioneering study of its kind and and pregnancy is like (laughs) i mean we don't study women's issues i I mean Mm -hmm. it's it's a yeah i i think it's so fascinating like like how could it be pioneering there's so little research and there's also so little remedy at the same time. So I remember when I actually went to the gynecologist downtown, the only solution that he had to, for me, even though he had done all this research, was to use a topical anesthetic and numb myself so that I couldn't feel anything. That was the only solution that he really had. What? <laughs> this is just making me... So there's real consequences to the lack of research. Not only is there millions of women probably um, under pain and 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 they don't know it's it's something medical and like not their fault and not to be dismissed but also the lack of research means there isn't proper treatment even when you do know what's happening and instead yeah numb yourself Mm -hmm. so you can't feel you don't have any pleasure that's just so but at least there's no pain no pain but like devastating also i feel like woman's pain and like it's just accepted and it's like oh yeah women are just they're in pain all the time and they're kind of dramatic about it and like that's just how women are but it's like oh is that how it's actually supposed to be are we actually just supposed to live our lives accepting our pain like I was diagnosed with a chronic condition literally in my first year of college and they were like yeah you probably should have been diagnosed with this when you were in middle school or earlier but because I grew up like with my parents calling me a wuss for like complaining about pain um and I accepted women being in pain as just part of being a woman I I never thought about actually going to a doctor for this issue let's talk about anger because I feel like we (laughs) this is making me angry um and that that just kind of reminds me too of schemas that there's also studies about how Annie and I took this class on women's leadership and women in the workplace, and they found that professional men can show anger in the workplace, and it's sort of read by everyone, men and women, as passion, and they're often paid more and given higher status or promoted. 
whereas when professional women express anger in the workplace, they're seen as being unhinged or more emotional or less in control of their emotions, and they're given like decreased wages or like decreased status. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that goes back to the whole scheme of where women are supposed to be gentle and non-confrontational. So I feel like women are so susceptible to being told that they're freaking out. I know in my life, I try to maintain a very calm composure. So even if I get frustrated or if I get upset by something, usually my upsets or confrontations are fairly mild, but I'm still told by the people on the other side that I was freaking out. Even though I'm probably wow. speaking in a level tone, just expressing myself and saying, this didn't really fit well with me can we just try something else they'll accuse me of freaking out wow Andrea you really freaked out then because I've set this precedent of being so so calm and so non-confrontational that any little spike I'm seen as freaking out when for anybody else like a man or someone else who hasn't had that pressure would express the same thing it would just be they're saying an opinion i spend way too much time on the wording of my emails because i really i want to like use exclamation points and like Mm -hmm. smiley faces i want to come off as like nice and friendly as possible uh i think for me right now the key is going to just be awareness i feel like the more you internalize it the more things are going to feel wrong to you so Mm. i feel like my appointment with the psychiatrist for example immediately felt wrong i immediately knew what was going on and i knew i had to i had to find a different doctor i feel like if that had happened four or five years ago i would have been like yeah i shouldn't gain weight gross a woman putting on an extra five pounds not good you know what i mean so i feel like it really does change with time and being at barnard especially and being at a women's college things like that you just kind of grow more aware and things just start to feel more and more wrong as you get older thank you so much for talking to us yeah of course it's been so awesome you're so insightful and you have great stories (laughs) (laughs) thank you yeehaw to counteract all of this can't a woman just act more manly or align herself with the male schema to be taken more seriously i mean sometimes another interesting aspect of gender schemas is their dichotomy By this, I mean gender is thought of as two concrete parts, directly opposing each other. When two schemas conflict, deviation from one schema means alignment with the other. At a basic level, a man who steps out of his tough, assertive, manly role, as defined by the male schema, would immediately align with the female schema. Nice, soft, emotional. When men and women diverge from their schemas, it's often subconsciously felt by those around them. They are read as inauthentic, as off. They may even leave a bad taste in your mouth. When a woman tries to be assertive or take on a tough exterior in an attempt to be a leader, her subordinates will often subconsciously feel a little off-put because she isn't aligning with the schema inside their heads. The same goes for when men diverge from their gender roles. Yeah, I know that the men in my life, when they act scared, or emotional, their friends often call them pussies. Or in a group project, when I try to be direct and assertive, I feel like everyone thinks of me as a bitch. Did you know it gets worse? What do you mean? (laughs) What if I told you that the male schema is the norm? I'd ask what you mean? So it's another point that Valian made in her book, Why So Slow, that really blew my mind, but I guess was also kind of obvious. So, the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal, right? Yeah. And the U.S. Constitution uses man to mean citizen on basically all occasions. Right. And 
humankind has been referred to as mankind for generations. Okay. What's the point? For women, a deviation from the female gender schema will be consciously or subconsciously interpreted as a deviation toward the male schema, which is the norm. And for men who deviate from their schema, not only will they be interpreted as a deviation, but they will be interpreted as a deviation away from the norm and down to the less ideal female schema. This can be seen plainly in the language we use on a day-to-day basis. When men step out of their masculine role held up by the male gender schema, we call them pussy or bitch, two slang terms that essentially mean female. Aligning with the female schema is less ideal than aligning with the male schema. I feel like the idea that fitting in the female schema is less ideal than fitting in the male schema was somehow something I realized or connected with in like the fourth grade. (laughs) I remember playing these games at recess with other boys in my class and them telling me, oh, you play like a girl as an insult. Or they told their guy friends when they missed a pass that they are playing like a, like a girl. And I think I really like thought that being a girl was a bad thing because I tried to be a tomboy. I would play football at recess. I listened to Green Day and wore Green Day shirts. I taught myself how to skateboard. And it was, I mean, my, my best friend will tell you that it was an act. I wasn't actually into skateboarding. I just wanted to be accepted. I didn't want to be ridiculed by the guys. And I also wanted them to like like me. <laughs> I wanted them to be my valentine, I think. Um, but of course it didn't work because it wasn't authentic. And like we've talked about, you know, leaving your schema often erupts people the wrong way. I think that probably happened. It's a strange thing to look back on because I didn't even have words for it then and I barely do now because it was such a like kind of subconscious thing that I was doing this this me trying to be a tomboy even though I think naturally I wasn't and I feel like schemas are one of the only things that I can use to explain it now and that's been a really interesting thing for me I'd also say that recently in the past like four or five years I've had a reclaiming of femininity and I now I'm like, I love pink. <laughs> My whole room is pink. And I wear dresses. Um, and I like football still. <laughs> and I like playing sports with, with the boys. So um, that's been really powerful to kind of no longer. It took me until literally like four years ago to stop rejecting things to and being like, ew, I'm not a girl. I'm a, I'm a dude. Like that's, that's no longer my thought process. Thank God. Why do gender schemas seem to affect so much? Like, why don't our horse schemas cause such an uproar? Gender holds a lot of weight in this society, and we are quite fixated on it. Yeah? Yeah. Like, for example, we see an infant dressed in yellow. The first thing that we do is ask the mother if it's a boy or a girl. When the gender of a baby is unclear, we aren't sure how to act around it. Oh, I never thought of it like that. Like, it's a baby. Why does it matter? Once we're confident of the gender, we can reference our gender schemas, make assumptions about the baby's interests, and properly interact with the child. Quote, properly. I'm shook. 
yeah, it's kind of weird. Like our kindergarten teacher divides us into boys and girls at lunch. Could you imagine if we were divided into black kids and white kids? It's illegal. (laughs) Well, no. Yeah, that would never happen. Yeah, rightfully so. There are many characteristics that we are born with that we don't divide our society groups into so advertently, at least anymore. Right. To be fair, boys and girls do have fundamental differences and black kids and white kids do not. But biologically, we aren't that different than boys. And why would gender differences matter when it comes to lunch tables and games at recess? Hmm. I think dividing kids by gender actually really works to highlight and even exacerbate what differences do exist between the genders. Boys versus girls tag at recess highlights the few differences between boys and girls. It's natural for girls to be like, ew, trucks are a boys thing because they see the boys sitting across the room playing with the trucks. Yeah, and boys and girls have way more similarities than they do differences. But dividing them and then giving one group trucks and others dolls really helps kids establish that there are two distinct gender schemas. Exactly. How the boys' table acts is, oh, that must be what boys do. And then how the girls' table acts means, oh, that's what girls do. Schemas exist for a reason. They're helpful. They're necessary, even. But it's important to see their limitations and their implications. It's important to see yourself outside of the box society tries to push you in. Historically, we've divided and ranked groups in regards to race, ethnicity, wealth, and gender. And many of those divisions still exist today, but come out in unconscious and psychological ways. For some people, like women of color, Multiple unconscious schemas work against them at any given time. No matter who you are, you're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to show that anger if you feel there's an injustice happening to you or those around you. Without actively checking ourselves, men and women inadvertently let our schemas dictate our perceptions of our co-workers and how we choose to treat them. The roles we were taught as children contribute to women's career stagnation, social judgment, and even physical pain. Wow, that... Makes me pretty angry. This was a highly scientific episode, but we wanted to set up this foundational concept so we can continue examining its implications in the future. For more information on gender schemas, read Virginia Valiant's book, Why So Slow, or tune into next week's episode of Pretty Angry. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>